This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, nerds. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Today's author needs a little introduction. It's, I can't believe I'm saying this, Cassandra Clare. Cassandra Clare is the author of the number one New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Publishers Weekly bestselling Shadowhunter Chronicles. She is also the co-author of the best-selling fantasy series Magisterium with Holly Black. The Shadowhunter Chronicles have been adapted as both a major motion picture and a television series. Her books have more than 50 million copies in print worldwide and have been translated into more than 35 languages. Cassandra lives in Western Massachusetts with her husband and her three fearsome cats, and she will be on PBN to talk about her new book, Swordcatcher, which comes out on October 10th. I hope you enjoy. Happy reading. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. I cannot believe today's guest is who it is. We have Cassandra Clare. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for coming to chat about Swordcatcher. I have so many questions. You probably won't be able to answer a lot of them since (laughs) it's not even out yet. (laughs) I'll try. We're here to talk about Swordcatcher. It comes out October 10th. Can you tell our listeners what they can expect from this book? So this is a... uh book I've always wanted to write. It's sort of a, it's a high fantasy novel um, with a lot of political intrigue, a lot of um, sort of uh, nobles behaving badly, a lot of um, sort of fun stuff in an imaginary city that's a big crossroads of trade. Um, so very multicultural and we have the criminal underworld and the um equally morally gray nobles um battling for power and uh yeah i think you know it's a it's sort of a traditional high fantasy in the vein of game of thrones and um books like that and and um it's been a lot of fun writing it it's so good. And so obviously high fantasy, you have all of this world building, you have like a magical system, there's all of the court politics and charter families, there's a lot of layers to the world of sword catcher. How did you even begin to tackle writing this book? I mean, I had an idea of what I wanted in terms of a, like a tone and an aesthetic and a feeling about Castellane. Um, I had been reading a lot about the Silk Roads and I I think like all authors, I have a lot of weird interests that span all sorts of things. Um, you know, they're not always reflected in, in the books I write. So people are often really surprised when I say like, I'm really interested in the history of trade routes 
And, you know, uh, I'm really interested in military history because this stuff doesn't really show up in the books that I've written so far. Um, but uh, so I'd been reading, I'd read Peter Frankopan's The Silk Roads, The New Silk Roads, and I was reading actually a book that um, is first person accounts by Jewish traders on the Silk Roads. Um, while I was traveling with my husband through Southeast Asia into Turkey and then over to Italy, and I just became really fascinated by the idea of a fantasy setting that wasn't like specifically Silk Road, but that represented a city where everybody came, like Venice or Constantinople in that time period. People come from all over the world because that's where the trade is. So, you know, people often look at history and think everything was mono-ethnic, monocultural, you know, and that's just not true at all. So I wanted to do something that felt historical, but that was also, you know, deeply like multicultural and something that also had some of the like sort of the fun and the glamour and the backstabbing of Venice at the like the height of its Silk Road power. So that was my first idea. Um, and then other ideas sort of gathered around that one. And the characters came to me, the idea of a Jewish physician, uh, something I always wanted to write about because we do have this, you know, um, the Jewish people do have this long history of being of medicine and of being doctors. Um, and then also the idea of the sword catcher um, came from me watching a television show called Locked Up Abroad. <laughs> oh, trashy TV that I like. Yeah, people are imprisoned for various crimes in various countries, and one of them it was weirdly about not a guy who got locked up, but rather um, the guy who used to be the body double for Uday Hussein, um, Saddam Hussein's son, and how he was basically kidnapped from the army and. They did plastic surgery on him. They taught him to walk and talk and dress like Udai, and he would go out in public and he would be him at any kind of occasion where um, Udai might be assassinated, as you know, the Hussein family was not beloved in their country. And so uh, I just watching it had this whole thought of like, what must it be like? to not have any identity of your own, to be constantly pretending to be someone else. Um, you know, and not just that, but you have to die for that person. And so that was my idea for the sword catcher. That's so interesting in terms of inspiration, because you're right. That sword catcher sort of terminology does take it to that next level. Kel is not just a bodyguard or just like somebody in Connor's inner circle. He really is meant to be secondary to Connor and keep him safe and alive at all costs. And I do love the, you know, the exchange with the two of them where he sort of states the purpose of that role. Their relationship is so interesting as well, um, Kel and Connor, where they're such familiarity with one another. Um, and some of the things that maybe Kel's always relied on with Connor in the past maybe don't work so much now that they're adults and things in the world are progressing. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things and the way this, you know, differs greatly from the the Uday Hussein story is that that guy hated Uday Hussein. He hated him. But um, I was thinking like, well, OK, but what if what I you know, what I'm interested in exploring is what if you loved that person? And if you were taken when you were just a child and brought to well, he lives in the same room with Connor, he always has. You would love them in the same love your family, you know, like familiarity, dependency, all sorts of things would factor into this relationship that is very close, kind of codependent, um, you know, and so 
I thought, well, the greatest, what's the greatest danger to that relationship? And the greatest danger is for Kel to start asserting his own identity. And I feel like that's what happens. I mean, Connor also, Connor is a troublemaker. He makes trouble the minute he walks on the page. He makes only terrible decisions. <laughs> I love him. But he is, he's a mess. And so, you know, Kel isn't just protecting him from, you know, people trying to stab him. He's also trying to protect him from all of the ramifications of his own behavior. But Kel's also finding out who he is on his own without Connor. And I feel like that, it throws their relationship into a whole different um, orbit and that causes a lot of the the problems that 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 he faces because I mean it may be necessary change but it's still change it's upheaval. Yes, that's such a good point. There's a lot that takes place in this story where the characters seem to grapple with change and with questioning things that they previously did not have to question about their circumstance. So to go back a little bit, you have two main characters in this story. We have Kel, who is the sword catcher. And then we have Lynn, who is a physician. She is arguably like the best physician um, that we have in this space. And she's sort of broken down a lot of barriers to get to that point. Uh, They don't historically allow women to be physicians um, in this setting. So I wanted to talk about what it was like to craft um, these two main characters and then a little bit about your other characters as well. Um, was it really easy to get into the voice and to the, the headspace for both Kel and Lynn? We get a lot of um, the story, obviously, from their alternating perspectives. Yeah, I think that it took a little while for me to get to know them both. Um Lynn was a little bit easier. Kel hides a lot. Um, it's his, I think when you're writing a character whose nature is to always be pretending to be someone else, it takes you a while to drill down to who they are under all of that. So I spent a lot of time sort of interrogating him, like, what are, what are your dreams? What are your goals? What would you like if you had, you know, could imagine a future that's different than the future that's been assigned to you? Are you even happy? <laughs> so, Oh, there was a lot of, you know, that. But once I got his his voice down, I really loved it. He's he's a really fun character to write. He's always a bit, you know, snarky in his mind about everything. Um, Lynn uh, is was a little bit easier to get to know. Um, and but I think it was because she is someone who really wants things, you know, when she she is very strongly determined and a character who really strongly desires things is a character that is is easier to kind of get to know because you know what they want lynn wanted to be a doctor and she did everything and she became a doctor and she wants to heal her friend who is sick and she is doing everything she'll burn down the world you know to make Miriam well and when someone is so determined i think that really shapes their character a great deal so lynn was a lot of fun especially because you know, we when we meet her, we're like, we know she's very determined. We know she'll do almost anything. By the time you get to the end of the book, you're like, she really will do anything. <laughs> yes. No matter how crazy. And I yeah, it it sort of felt like, and it's so hard. I absolutely do not want to spoil anything for our listeners because there's so much wonderful, you know, things to discover in this book. But it does really feel like Lynn evolves in a way that I almost didn't expect from somebody that seemed so determined at the beginning, but you're right. She really does kind of get out of her comfort zone. I'll say 
I vaguely feels very sensible in the beginning. She's very determined, very sensible. By the time you get to the end, you're like, she's more determined than sensible. <laughs> yeah, she is more determined than than and more right. I think more willing to take a chance than I perhaps thought at the start of the book. Yeah, I do think she changes, you know, I think knowing Kel and then the rag picker king, I don't think that's a spoiler, like, you know, how like does change her somewhat in the things she's willing to do, just like knowing the rag picker king changes Kel. Uh, the rag picker king is another character I really love. He is a very mysterious figure. We basically just know he sort of is the head of crime in Castellane. There's always been a rag picker king. There always will be built like the Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> it's a title. <laughs> um, he has a name, doesn't he? They only use it sometimes, but um his He's a fun character because he's sort of a trickster character. You never know if he's up to good or up to bad. So I really love him. Um, one of my other favorite characters is Antonetta, Antonetta Elaine, who is um, one of the nobles. She's the daughter of the um, of the woman who holds the charter for the Silk family. So very, very wealthy, very powerful family. Um, but Antonetta is a character whose interactions with power are very complicated. Um, and it's interesting. We meet her at the beginning. We only know her as this girl who broke Kel's heart when they were teenagers, basically. Um, when, you know, her family sort of made it clear to him that he, whoever they even think he is, Connor's cousin, um, isn't, you know, worthy of her, shouldn't be going near her. And, you know, she also stops talking to him. So he spends years just thinking she has no time for him. And then that turns out to not necessarily be the case. Um, and mm -hmm. instead it turns out to be, Someone who is a lot more complicated than I think she initially appears to be. She is one of my favorite characters. There is definitely more to her than meets the eye. I think people will really enjoy seeing the evolution of a lot of these characters in this world that you've built, because a lot of the intrigue is that royal sort of court political intrigue that's happening simultaneously with all of the other things like the sort of criminal network in the city and then we also have the magical system there are so many cool elements into this this book and so that it does very rambling lead me to my next question this is a fantasy this is your adult um first adult effort why did you decide that now is the time to do adult oh my gosh um i think just the story idea came to me and as i was sort of creating the story and shaping the story, I realized that the characters were older, that like just didn't work with characters that were 16, 17 years old. Um, they weren't placed correctly for that. I really wanted Lynn to be a doctor. It takes years to learn to be a doctor. You know, um, I wanted Connor to be an adult and, and Kel needed also to be an adult for that because of the things that have to do with sort of the responsibilities of ruling. Um, you know, all of the character stories only really made sense if they were, you know, older and not teenagers. And so I feel like, feel like that is the thing that defines the difference between adult and YA is more than anything else, the age and the, and the interests and the drives of the characters, you know, YA often is about figuring out who you are. And it's about also first times, first love, first loss, first grief, first mistakes, and these people have had love and grief and mistakes before. So they are in a different position. Their their sort of perspectives on the world are different. And that to me is what makes it an adult book. That's so true. 
And right that they are coming at it from just a different place. They are not necessarily experiencing a lot of firsts, but they are, well, some firsts in this book, but (laughs) but you're right. They have a lot of that um, experience. And I think that is interesting as well, because Connor seems to be in a little bit of a transition where he is, he's certainly always been preparing to rule. But as he gets older and and things like marriage are coming up, that seems to be a little bit more of a reality for him that he's not just, you know, in the royal family. He actually has to start thinking about what he's going to be like as a ruler. Right. It's not all just a sort of distant image. I mean, we learn early that, you know, his father has stopped kind of ruling, has retreated into his tower, Mm -hmm. is... Uh, as he says, studying the stars, not interested in in the world anymore, and puts Connor in the position where he is sort of de facto doing a lot of stuff that he would do if he was king. And so he is in this strange transitional period of being like, well, I'm not the king, I'm the prince. I don't have that type of responsibility technically, but practically I have a lot more responsibility. And, you know, you don't get the sense that he has been particularly well brought up in terms of anyone telling him what a good ruler should do. He's just sort of feeling around and he's making a lot of mistakes. Right. And so that is a little bit where um, some of these other really important characters come into play. He has a lot of advisors. Um, I um, see, and I love fantasy, but then I always struggle because I'm like, do I know how to pronounce the names or do I just like <laughs> skim them in my head? And then you're like, yeah, that person. Exactly. Um, but the advisor to the king is Lynn's grandfather. Mayesh. Mayesh. And then he also has the sort of head of the guard um, oh, as well. I'm like, I need, we need a pronunciation guide for all the names. It's hard because um, Kathleen, the, the language is, is uh, French and, you know, influenced. So you have to pronounce it all like it's French. Right, with an accent. And so, and then we also have a, these other characters. Um, there's a lot of people, obviously, inside the royal court and sort of the those important charter families. And then we also have some of my favorite character sort of in the criminal underworld. There's Marin, who's a poisoner. Um, there's some other characters in sort of the Rag Picker Kings network. Is there anyone that you wrote sort of in those characters that you're particularly fond of? I love, I mean, look, I love Connor's terrible friends. Um, he has like any, I guess it's like entourage. He has like any powerful guy, this group of friends that he's known since they were little kids together and they're awful <laughs> but he doesn't really know that they're awful he's known them so long they're just part of his life and part of the tapestry of of living in Castellane um so there that's Montfasson, Roberge and Falconet who is the only one who seems to have redeeming qualities and they just spend a lot of time doing stupid things like betting like throwing pies off the tower of the castle um so they I weird I mean do I want to spend time with them no but do I love them like Yes, they were like a lot of fun as characters, um, especially as Connor loses patience with them over time. Um, so I really enjoyed writing them. Um, they're ridiculous. Um, the Ragpicker Kings cohorts, Marin, um, yes, Marin the Poisoner. I love him. He's like a like the sweetest guy, yet also his job is murder and poisoning. And then Gian, who is um sort of the Ragpicker Kings like right-hand person. 
Um, she has a really, you know, a backstory we haven't really gotten to delve into yet, but it is a very a good, fun backstory and I'm excited to like get to it and in book two and learn more about her. But as is, she is kind of a stone cold killer and we don't know much about her, but there is a lot more to her. I'm very excited that you brought up that there is more to this. So I know we're talking about Swordcatcher. It's coming out soon. The first book in what I hope to be a many book series. Are you allowed to share any information about maybe what's to come for the world of the Swordcatcher series? I also hope it will be more, many more books. Definitely. Um, there, the second one is what I'm working on right now. It's called The Ragpicker King. Um, and uh, it, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. I know. <laughs> this book ends with a lot of uncertainty and chaos. I can say that much. And so we are thrown in the second book into a situation in which a lot of uh, chaotic damage has been done. And also a great crime has been committed that we need to figure out who did it. So Kel and the Ragpicker King and his cohort sort of become detectives in the second book, which I think is a lot of fun for, for me anyway. Um, they're trying to figure out who, who was behind the things that happened at the end of book one. Who's the, who's the, you know, who's the plotter? Who's the criminal? What's going on there? Um, Connor has been thrown into this situation in which he needs to fix a really bad situation very quickly. Um, so of course, you know, he's going to do it in the, in the way that Connor does by making a decision that's going to cause even more problems. Um, and Lynn has now taken on this huge responsibility with her people. Um, you know, I mean, writing the people of the Ashkar has been a really, like, important and significant thing for me because, you know, they are you know, while they are not Jews, they are the Ashkar. They are very reminiscent of um, the Jewish people and they share a lot in terms of their background, their mythology, um, their the fact that they're a diasporic people. Um, so her role and what that's going to mean for her people is really, I think, a big focus of book two. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm so excited to hear that. And it's so funny. I'm like asking you about the next book and the first book is not even yet out in the yeah. world. But I know that listeners and readers will be excited to know that this is hopefully the entree into a world that they can fully fall into. This is so immersive, this world you've created. It's so beautiful and compelling. And so to focus back a little bit on this one, I know the answer to this, but I want to know your response is, can our listeners and our readers expect to find romance in this? Since I know that's what they enjoy from your other series. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I would say, yes, there is romance and there's even more so in the second book once all the, the relationships are set up and whatnot. Um, but I mean, I do think it's it's interesting because I do feel like we're in an era of like romanticy at the moment, which I think of as like romance is the A plot and everything else is sort of the B plot. And I would still say that the A plot is the mystery and the politics um, and the romance is the B plot. So I guess I'm just saying, you know, something to know, but it's definitely there. I mean, I love romance. I don't think I would be very have much fun writing a book that didn't have it. So um, it has two definitely of my favorite tropes in it and one being the sort of like uh, I would call I don't know if I want to call it second chance romance, but like you know, there was a bond between two people that was broken and now can they put it back together? And then there's also the um, two people who initially really dislike each other. <laughs> Both of those are tropes that I really enjoy. Um, and I'm trying to do this without naming any of the character. Uh, and then there are little little bits of hints of other romances. So we're going to see, you know, Marin get a romance and Jared get a romance and Gian get a romance and those other people as well um, once we get into the second book. Yes. So they can expect some flirting, some tension. There are lots of things uh, in this There's a lot of flirting well. in this book, a lot of tension, a lot of like uh, romantic talk um, and kissing. So I, I mean, I do think sometimes people are surprised when I say it's adult and they're like, oh, there will be lots and lots of explicit sex. And I'm like, well, no, there's not actually, right. <laughs> there is a lot of romance, but it doesn't take that form. It doesn't mean there'll never be, you know, any sex in any of the books. These people are grownups, but in this book, um, yeah, we get, we get more sexy talk than anything else. Yeah. And you're right that this, the, the fantasy and the political intrigue and the court intrigue and all of the other things going on are definitely, I mean, they were what I wanted to solve. I'm like paid turning page after page, like, okay, who is behind this? What is happening? <laughs> but I absolutely, as a romance reader, enjoy those like moments of tension and those little bits peppered throughout. So absolutely excited to see some of those things evolve for these characters um, in this book and beyond. Well, they definitely do. I, I'm so happy to hear that. Oh my goodness. And so another thing that this book really touches on is the notion of found family. Uh, so Kel and Connor are sort of each other's found family. Um, there are some familial tensions and complications, you know, with Lynn and her um, grandfather and other things and um, her friend Miriam. There's a, a really big emphasis on, on that found family again. And so I wanted to ask you, it's really important to the story. Why do you think it's so important to have that sort of found family represented in books? I think because for a lot of people, there, you know, the family that you are given is not, you know, we are is something that is something of a work in progress. Um I think it's really important to know, especially for people who are in family situations where either they're, they don't feel like they fit in or they're unhappy or in more serious cases, there's, you know, um, narcissism or abuse or gaslighting or something that causes people to sometimes sever contact with their family is that you can make a family outside of the people that were, you know, just that are related to you by blood. Um, you know, and I think that that's just something that people really find, I think, comforting. Um, there are also people who have lost their families, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that you might 
need or want um you know your your secondary family and i think for many of us you know um i mean i'm gen x but also millennials uh you know our family of friends is as important to us as either our you know genetic family or romantic partners and so there's something i think really comforting about seeing that primacy of friendship and the significance and closeness of those bonds like reflected back at you like clearly you know cal is not related to connor would die for connor that's a complicated relationship but you know the ragpicker king and his cohort of his little you know merry band they're all very loyal to each other lynn you know did lose her parents um she does have this incredibly strong relationship with her best friend she also has this very strong relationship with chana who is sort of her mentor and advisor. Um, and one of the things that I did enjoy very much about this book was writing the relationship between Lynn and her grandfather because it is tense and it is complicated. It's not an easy relationship, but um, it's an interesting relationship. It's a very interesting relationship. And I think that that's, it's such a good um, point as well when you sort of cast found family against a backdrop of all these characters where you know, familial lines and um, inheritance and all of those things play such a big part in people's motivations um, where your your children are not necessarily just your children. They're also there to serve a purpose for trade or for forging relationships and things like that. Um, you know, you have all those arranged marriages and um and again, it, it seems to be a really interesting thing where it's sort of the the way that family maybe means something different in that type of world. Yes. I mean, the arranged marriages are sort of the thing that is almost the first thing that Connor has to face in terms of having a responsibility that they, you know, um, he's sort of continuously told, like, you belong to Castellane. Like, you may be the prince and you may be very rich and, and favored, but you belong to Castellane. And the end of the day, we sell you to whoever is the most advantageous connection for the city. Um, and so we have that example of arranged kind of loveless marriage. And in this case, in this book, it really turns out badly. Um, and, uh, then we also have other, I think, examples of, um, the ways in which marriage is very complex as a transaction of power among the wealthy. So Antonetta, she's terrified of who her mother is going to engage her to, as it turns out, she's right about that, you know, um, and then we also, I think by contrast though, have the salt where, People have these very close community relationships and, you know, there's Mez, who is a friend of Lynn's and who gets married. And that's clearly a love marriage and clearly like a marriage in which, you know, it is significant that the whole kind of community be there to kind of recognize and acknowledge this, you know, um, this wedding because it knits them into the community which is this very tight community. So the salt is almost the opposite of what's happening up on the hill where people will stab their grandma in the back for an advantage. And then, you know, in the salt, there's very much more like, you know, we are loyal to each other. We are like a community of people. Absolutely. I love that there are so many layers to this book and you have all of these really fascinating settings. I mean, I think readers are absolutely going to fall in love with the world of Castellane. 
It's so good. I hope um, so. I mean, I'm very excited for the book to come out. I am very excited for the book to come out as well so that I can discuss it with other readers. Um, and so speaking of which, we are a couple of weeks away from the release of this book. You are going on a pretty uh, busy book tour. Uh, yep. What are you most excited about uh, seeing readers um, in person? I mean, I think, you know, I've been on book tour before, but not for a book that people are totally sort of unfamiliar with for a long time. So I think for me, it's going to be really interesting and exciting to be able to talk about Swordcatcher for the first time with people who've read it. You know, it's fun to talk to you. I've talked to a few people who've read it, but like, you know, it's going to be really interesting to go out and like interact with my readers and, you know, see who are the characters they like? What are the relationships they're invested in? What are the questions they have? You know, what do they think is going on with Prosper Beck? You know, like, yeah. what's like, Jared's you know, deal? <laughs> Why is he wearing that mask? Like, what's up with him? Um, you know, uh, so all of those questions, you know, I think I are going to be fun for me to be able to discuss with people. Um, so I'm I'm excited about that. You know, I've, I've been touring for Shadowhunters books for a long time, and that's fun in a different way because it's a world of many, many, many books, a huge amount of mythology. And so there's always lots of questions and things to discuss. But I think for me, that it's the it's the newness. It's like sort of I'm introducing you to all of my new friends. What do you think? Yeah, the newness and a little bit of that unknown, but I think very exciting, um, certainly exciting for me as a reader to sort of have a whole new world to get invested in now. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I mean, every time someone tells me they liked it, I'm like, yay. <laughs> it's really I, nice. I will. Well, I won't. If we get spoilery, I will cut it. But I literally in my notes just have how about that ending with like 400 question marks. I finished <laughs> the book. And like I, I, my husband, he bless him. He has no context for any of these things I'm reading. I finished it and I was like, excuse me. And I'm talking to him about it. I'm like, this is how it ends. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> what? You know, like he doesn't know anything else. I'm just like, I read him the last line and I'm just like, well, I need, I need the next book now. Answers. <laughs> I need answers. This isn't even out yet. And I need answers. Um, so no, I really, really enjoyed it. With the ending, because um, initially I wrote the ending and then I wrote sort of like an explanatory like section of like what, you know, sort of what happened next and you know everybody kind of goes home to ponder and my editor was like no we don't need any of that you just end it here you know yeah. we don't, don't want to know we well I mean we do want to know but the, the amount of stuff we want to know that's the second book we don't need to know that then everybody like had a long think and I was like yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no it's certain it absolutely sets the stage for everything else I'm excited to see come in this world um now, I wanted to ask you while I have you about one of my favorite things, and that is the special editions of this book. There are quite a few. Do you have a favorite? Are you allowed to choose a favorite? <laughs> I'm not allowed to choose a favorite. Um, <laughs> the Owl Crate has done an amazing edition. It's gorgeous. Um, I, I have seen the Fairy Loot special edition, and I can say it's amazing. Um, I really love that. Barnes and Noble and Indigo and Waterstones all got together and did this like beautiful gold cover. Um, mm -hmm. I would definitely, you know, recommend that one. Uh, so yeah, it's been really interesting because it's like, uh, for me, you know, 
I haven't had all of these special editions and all of this stuff, you know, um, for a while. And so I, I mean, I think it's because book boxes and things like that are relatively new and, uh, you know, the ability of people above like both bookstores and, you know, um, to do like when 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 we did special editions back in the day, it was all like, well, I would provide like something like an extra chapter or an, a piece of story, and they could bind that into the book. But now, the sort of technology of making books has become much more advanced, and so you can make these extremely beautiful, extremely like startling, likely different and interesting copies. And I mean, so yes, yeah, just the amount of like of of people who have come in to make beautiful copies of Swordcatcher has really made me happy. I'm so excited for all of these editions. Um, and so for listeners, you can, I feel like you can throw a stone and find an edition of this book that's lovely and up your street. Um, yeah. There's like Illumicrate, uh, Fairy Loot, the hey, Waterstones. Perfect. Right. Waterstones, Indigo, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. um, Owlcrate. Owlcrate. <laughs> You'll be able to find one that you like. Yes. Oh, and um, Forbidden Planet, I think, has one yes, as well Planet. with the sprayed edges. Edition with sprayed edges. I love sprayed edges. And that's super new, too. I'm like, yes. oh, the fact that they can do like these beautiful designs with sprayed edges. It's so cool. They're so gorgeous. And um, it's really funny. I was chatting with my co-host at the podcast, and I was like, can I justify having multiple copies of the same book? Um, and he was like, yeah, absolutely. They look different enough. And so, um, I do have the Illumicrate edition on order and I do, but then I was like, well, but I need like the red cover. I want like the red. Um, so then I also ordered a copy with your virtual event kickoff from the strand. (laughs) You can ask Holly and me any questions you want. She's promised to talk. (laughs) <laughs> I have I have several that I will throw into that chat. Um, and Holly Black, I love. She was on the podcast last year for Book of Night. Um, it's great. Yeah, it's been so interesting because we both. I actually had like wrote like uh, sold Swordcatcher, and then it took basically five years to write it. During which time she sold, wrote, and published Book of Night, and I was like, "Why are you so fast?" <laughs> well, right, like the the world, and I'm so excited like to have the adult installments. Obviously, I grew up with a lot of these books, these YA books, and now like as an adult, I'm I obviously I'm thrilled as a reader to have them. Um, these new stories that are in my age range. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I totally get that. I mean, I think part of my, when I was like, can I write an adult book? I was like, well, so many of my readers, you know, when I meet them now, they're like, well, I started reading your books when I was 11, but now I'm 27. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, yeah, like a book for you guys. Absolutely. We, I appreciate it as well. Um, because I do, I love YA so much, but I am at that age where I do feel a little bit like I'm too old for certain YA books where I, it's just much harder to relate. Um, yeah, to no, some I, of them. I mean, I, I read YA. I, I always will, you know, it's my, it's my, business, it's my, it's my thing, but I also, yeah, I, I also, when I'm reading adult books, there are those moments where I recognize something that is so specific to life as an adult or being a grown up, or, you know, even like throwing myself back into like memories of my life in my late twenties. And I'm like, yes, I relate to that. I relate to that so much. And so to have that moment of, you know, recognition is I think also very significant. 
Yes. And it's so important and wonderful to have that representation and that recognition sort of through all the different, you know, ages and stages that we go through. I just like love books. So thank you so much for everything that you, you know, put out. It it makes such a big impact. Um, It really does. Oh, that's so sweet. And thank you so much for having me. And also I'm just admiring your color-coded bookshelves. I wish I was that disciplined. Um, it's honestly just for the zoom aesthetic, the rest oh, of my really shelves. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. The rest of my shelves are not color coded because it's too much, <laughs> but thank you. Mine are separated by genre, but then my husband and I started having arguments about what was with what genre, you know, I was like, well, this is obviously horror. And he was like, I would call it dark fantasy. And I'm like, we're going to get divorced. So it was very complicated. <laughs> Actually arranging all of our thousands of books. It was a, a, the most tense thing that we've ever done. But well, fine. that's, it's yeah. so hard though. Like, how do you organize them? Like by genre, do you keep you know, do you do alphabetical? Do you keep series together? Do you like have special editions in a separate spot, like color coded? Once we decided we were going to do genre, like, but then are you going to put like, say the graphic novels that are science fiction in with the science fiction? Or do you have a separate section for the graphic novels? That's a whole thing. It's so hard. It's, I feel like as readers, we're constantly refining this system of organization. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so as we as we wrap up, I did want to ask you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'll I'll formally ask you, um, what else are you working on that you can talk about if if anything? So I'm also working on so I'm working on the Ragpicker King. Um, I'm also working on the first book of the Wicked Powers, which is the next upcoming and probably final trilogy in the Shadow Hunter series. Uh, I'm excited about that and having fun with it. Um, and let's see, I just announced a Kickstarter that I'm doing of four different books. Most of them are finished, but I'm working on sort of editing and polishing those up. There's a collection of short stories. There's a collection of novellas. Um, and so, yeah, I've got a lot on my plate. Um, and then I recently had an idea for a new YA sort of romantic fantasy series. So I've been just sketching the outlines of that and figuring out what it's about. Oh, amazing. I know our listeners will be so happy to hear that this is coming out soon. And then there's a lot more on deck. So much. So where can our listeners find you? What's the best way to stay up to date with everything that's going on? Probably um, to my, go to my website, which is um, just CassandraClaire.com. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter there or the best social media place to find me is Instagram. I'm Cassie Claire one. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was been, this has been, I can't even speak. I'm so flustered and excited. This has been so much fun getting to chat with you about Swordcatcher. Thank you so much for coming on Pro Book Nerds. Uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. And um, yeah, so glad you liked it. And I'll see you at the virtual party. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.